What's happening, everyone? Welcome to the Paranormal. I am Johnny Monoxide, and tonight it's just me and Reinhardt. What up, guy? What's up, dude? This feels like old times, like when I first came on the show. Oh man, yeah, it definitely does, man. Those were uh, those were some semi-dark days of the of the Paranormal podcast. I was moving around a lot. Didn't know what was going on. A couple of hosts disappeared. Didn't new hosts. Yeah, but. Yeah. But hey, I mean, just after that time in those dark ages, I mean, we found Phantom Time, the Trans Agenda, yep. got into Tartaria not long after. Yeah, the show, it was like a, um, I don't know what kind of bird it would be, but like, you know, like falling and then catches itself, you know, right as, you know, the, or it's like one of those movies where the, the airplane the, the, the engines kick out and before it crashes the engine kick back in. Oh, right, right past the mountain, they just you know, barely missed the mountain. And now we're soaring up towards the firmament, <laughs> up above the chemtrails. Probably going to get shot down at some point by an angel. Yeah, yeah, like you're way up too high there, kiddo. Yeah, too close <laughs> to the glass. But you know what? Until until we get there, we keep enjoying our Nationalist Enquirer live streams and uh, enjoy pissing off everybody by destroying golden calves. Yeah, man. Well, we just keep doing what we do. So that's all we can do. Right. But what we can do this week, uh, we have, we're going to, we're going to jump into it right away. We have an interview with Dr. Laura Sanger. Um, She is an author and she wrote the book, The Roots of the Federal Reserve. Um, And that is the Nephilim agenda from NOAA to the Federal Reserve, basically. Yeah, tying tying back the financial and uh, and elite roots of this world that we see today all the way back into prehistory. Now, when you say all the way back, you do it in that tone. It makes it sound like it was so long ago. It doesn't necessarily mean it was. See, I was I was going I was going for the sarcastic all ah, the way back. Though. Okay, 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 fair enough. Yeah, because yeah, all the way back, we don't know. We don't know if it was five hundred years ago. You know, we don't know if it was 300 years ago or if it was 2,000 years ago. Who knows? We don't because all the history we know about has been fabricated. Or at least... The history, the science, all of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, what the science is in, though. <laughs> the science is in. That's right. Oh. Yes. But you know what else is in? This interview. Ooh, that was bad. All right. All right. Well, we are going to talk to Dr. Laura Sanger right now. All right. Hello, Dr. Laura Sanger. Welcome to the Paranormies. Thank you for having me. It was great to get you on. Uh, We heard you on Blurry Creatures and we were like, oh man, we have to get her on. Hopefully she'll come on. So we emailed you right away and and there you are. You're you're here now. <laughs> we we talk about we talk about a lot of the stuff that you talk about in your book and um, what you've talked about on podcasts uh, a lot. So uh, our listeners who may not have listened to the blurry creatures stuff um, are definitely interested in your uh, your theories and well facts and theories. Well, awesome. I always enjoy having the opportunity to speak to a new audience. So I'm glad you guys reached out. Oh, absolutely. We love having new guests on. Uh, you know, we just had Gary Wayne on recently um, and we are having another big guest on tomorrow night. Uh, we've had 
we've had you know guests from people that talk about the shape of our realm to uh to politics to ghost stories to bigfoot stories but uh yeah we love we love having guests on the show so thanks for coming by <laughs> <laughs> gives us a chance to sit back and 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 listen to people who know more than we do about things right <laughs> right there you go <laughs> so um you for for you at least we have kind of a new audience for you um these are people as johnny said that may not have heard you speak before um but what you have written your book about on the federal reserve um you know from the days of noah forward (laughs) tracing the nephilim from noah to the u.s dollar that's that's a pretty big topic to hit it Um, it is for sure (laughs) yeah i I, you know, I had no intention of actually writing a book, so it, it's quite amazing the journey that I've been on, but I'm grateful for the journey. Oh, absolutely. The journey is, is the important part. You know, that's not the first time I've heard that story that I never meant to write a book. Like, (laughs) it seems that like most people that I know that have written books were like, you know, I never meant to write a book, but here we are publishing my second book now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's at some point, you know, you, you go from researching just to understand it yourself and you get to the point kind of where you're, you're writing things out to keep it, to keep everything in line. And eventually you decide, you know, there, these specific things, these specific dots haven't really been connected very much before people need to know about this. So finally you just, you just kind of decide, okay, it needs to happen. Right. Yeah. And you know, my, my experience writing this book, I think was pretty unique in that, um, you know, I'm, for those that don't know, I'm a psychologist by profession. And so, you know, I've been involved. I do clinic. I have done clinical work. I retired from clinical work, but I, you know, did therapy for a long time. I worked in VA medical centers. Um, you know, I specialized in chronic mental illness, addictions, personality, and adolescent treatment. And, you know, throughout that experience, um, I have always been involved in some form of research. And, you know, when I first started research, I think it was back in 1989. And I remember being in the psychiatry department in the VA medical hospital in La Jolla, California. And, um, you know, I was researching extrapyramidal side effects, which is like involuntary movements that were created by the medication people with schizophrenia had to take. And I absolutely was hooked from that point forward. And so I've always been involved in some form of research. Um, you know, it's taken twists and turns over the years. And so I was able to bring that skill set to writing this book. But, you know, one of the things that I did to, you know, to start it essentially to start the process is I wrote what's called a a spiritual mapping prayer brief. This was back in 2014 on the federal reserve. Um, and again, I, I didn't have any idea that I was going to write a book. I, I really just felt this nudge from the Lord to write this prayer brief. Um, and so I did, and that's kind of what launched everything. But are you guys, have you ever heard of spiritual mapping? Are you guys familiar with what that is? I am not. Could you please enlighten me and those who do not know? Yeah, I don't yeah, know Yeah, because it, it really formed um, kind of the basis for what this book is about. Um, so spiritual mapping, just kind of a high level overview. It's, um, 
you know, it involves gathering research on like the physical, social, and spiritual pulse of either a city, a territory, a people group, an institution, whatever it is that, you know, we're, we're focused on that God's given us an assignment for. And so it involves digging through history to uncover those ancient roots of defilement. And there's three components to spiritual mapping. Um, there's reconnaissance, there's research, and then there's informed intercession. And I actually like to be involved in all three of those. But what we do um, with reconnaissance, for example, is we'll have a team of people that will send out onto the land itself. So w- whatever whatever it is, the assignment we've been given. So for example, we've uh, we've done the Olympics before. We've done, um, you know, local high schools. We've done the West Desert out in Utah, um, whatever the assignment is. And so we go out onto the land and the people that are part of this team, they have, you know, real um, gifts of discernment is how we term it. But essentially they can feel what's happened on the land. And so they'll use different senses. So we have people that for example, can see into the spiritual realm or different dimensions. Um, And then we have people that can literally feel the land, like what's coming off the land. So another way to think about that is like the frequencies that are coming from the land itself. And then occasionally we have people on our team that can actually hear um, the land and and what it's communicating, which is fascinating to me. So anyways, we... um, we gather that information, and it's it's a little bit like, um, for those that are familiar with the Bible, when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan um, to do reconnaissance. That's, that's what we do, and so we gather information, but then we pair that with research, and the research component of spiritual mapping, you know, essentially what we're doing is we're digging into, you know, historical documents. We'll We'll look at demographic data. We'll interview um, even some of the local people to find out from their perspective what's happened. And then also we have found like looking through old newspaper articles can be incredibly helpful. And so what we do is we pull all that information together and we write a prayer brief. And, you know, throughout the years, I've been doing this for about 25 years, um, spiritual mapping. And, you know, those you know, not just on our team, but others that do spiritual mapping, what we've discovered is that there's four different types of iniquity. So iniquity is a pattern of sin. And there's four different types of iniquity that um, can create what's called a stronghold. And a stronghold, a way to think about that is like this big, thick, dark blanket that covers a territory or a region. And so the four different types of iniquity are sexual perversion or immorality, idolatry, broken covenants, and then um, bloodshed on the land. And so what we want to do is we want to identify, okay, what, what are these ancient roots that have defiled the land? And so we write up a prayer brief and and our goal is to really equip those that are going to pray for the land to be able to go and cleanse the land to, you know, uproot wicked structures through our prayers. And then we want to, you know, break off any curses that have been spoken on the land. We want to be able to release the full measure of blessing that God has intended. Because really the goal is to see people that live in that area um, be set free, you know, from whatever bondage they might be living under. And we want to see them be able to step into their full God-given purposes. So, Anyways, that's what spiritual mapping is. And so back in 2014, I wrote this mapping 
uh, you know, spiritual mapping prayer brief for the Federal Reserve and, you know, gathered some intercessors and we began to pray through the targeted prayer strategy that I identified. And then I thought, you know, my assignment was done, but it seemed like over the next year or so, the Lord just kept nudging me and I realized that he wanted me to pick it back up. So in 2016, I did. And I began researching and writing even more. And I really, you know, at that point, I didn't know what I was writing. It, it was becoming far too long for a prayer brief. You know, those are about five to 10 pages. And I was just, you know, obedient and kept re researching and writing. Then finally, in 2017, it became clear to me that he was asking me to write a book. So I spent four years researching and writing the roots of the Federal Reserve. And as you say, what I what I do is I trace the Nephilim agenda from the days of Noah to the Federal Reserve. And I, you know, as I was writing, I had no idea like these twists and turns that this investigative journey would take. And I'm I'm one of those people that just I love to learn. I have this naturally inquisitive mind. So I'm like always formulating questions in my head to research. And I also really enjoy treasure hunts. <laughs> so I just feel like the Lord had fun with me and laying out these clues along the way. And I really had no idea if any of it would connect. Um, it just was, you know, an act of obedience. So I, I wrote the book in real time, which means like as I was writing chapter five, I had no idea how how this book would even come together, where it would lead. Um, I just was putting one foot in front of the other. And one of my constant prayers throughout the writing process was Jeremiah 33, 3. And that says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. And I have to say, I definitely lived that. So <laughs> I'm super grateful for the journey. And I recognize now that, you know, it got published November of 2020. And now, you know, the Lord's given me this opportunity to now share with audiences some of the things that um, I uncovered along the way in this journey. So, like I said, I'm, I'm super grateful for opportunities like this um, because I, I know that not many people understand, first of all, the Nephilim agenda and they they don't see how it impacts us today. And so I know that's part of what I'm called to do right now is just to raise awareness, to awaken people. And, you know, as crazy as it sounds, and it might not sound crazy to you guys, but as crazy as it sounds, you know, what I'm trying to do also is to help people recognize that there are Nephilim and Nephilim hosts alive today, and they're very active in our world. So I want to help people understand this so we know how to fight against it and to overcome Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, I want to go back just a second and say I too love treasure hunts. Um, that, <laughs> yes. And who does? And as a matter of fact, who doesn't? Like seriously, this is one of the things. Right. Why we, we people who do the things that we do here on the show, like literally every topic is a treasure hunt. We find things mm. all the time. We're delving into. I got some questions for you, like later, later after, but that um, just have absolutely nothing to do with your book. But I just I want to get your get your opinion on, on a couple things later. But uh, they have to do with treasure hunts. Um, yes. So Nephilim hosts are something that that's a coin, a, a coin, a term you coined. Right? I did. Yes. And, and that yeah. is could you explain that to the listeners, please? Yes, absolutely. So um, let me just first kind of lay out 
quickly how I describe the Nephilim agenda, because, you know, everyone has a slightly different perspective, but I mean, overall, we're, we're saying similar things. But um, the way that I describe the Nephilim agenda, of course, it was unleashed during the days of Noah, um, but it's the plan to defile the human genome through the propagation of a hybrid race. And the purpose of that is to overthrow God's kingdom. Now, the origins of the Nephilim agenda, they actually go all the way back to the seed war in Genesis 3. Uh, but one of the things that I think is so important for us to understand is at the core of the Nephilim agenda is this goal to strip us of our humanity. So if we keep that in mind, um, you know, that I think that's important moving forward. But so... Yes, I coined the term Nephilim host and, um, you know, rightfully so, I get a lot of questions like what's the difference between Nephilim and Nephilim host? So I thought it'd be a good place to start just for me to differentiate the two. So Nephilim um, are hybrids, you know, they're mixed species humans. And the way that I think about it, there's at least two main categories of hybrids. So there's augmented humans and then there's mixed species humans. And you know, augmented humans, those would be um, people who have been genetically altered, um, you know, for enhancement. So like humans 2.0, or we mm -hmm. think about the Chinese super soldiers as an example. And then um, mixed species humans would be um, both chimeras, which are part human, part animal, but then also the Nephilim. So the Nephilim are part human, part spiritual being. Now, Nephilim hosts... Um, they are, what I'm proposing is they are humans. So they're individuals who have purposely partnered with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out the Nephilim agenda. And in part of my writing um, process, what became very apparent to me is that what I could add to all the literature on the Nephilim is by constructing a proposed criteria that would advance our ability to discern the presence of Nephilim traits within an individual. And so, you know, I think this is really important because we, we cannot be deceived in thinking that the Nephilim only roamed the earth during the days of antiquity. So what I'm proposing and setting out is that there are Nephilim hosts alive today, and many of them are the titans of global governance. And you'll see what I mean as I lay this out a little bit more. So you know, as I was developing this criteria, what I did was conduct what's called a literature review. So essentially, I I used ancient texts, I use um, extra biblical manuscripts, and then, of course, the biblical record um, to construct the this criteria. And I was able to identify four physical traits and 19 behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim and their giant offspring. So then a Nephilim host is somebody again, it's a human that meets this proposed criteria for classification. So what, what I lay out is, um, you know, we're looking for three or more physical traits and three or more behavioral characteristics. But if someone doesn't have any physical traits, then I suggest there needs to be at least five behavioral characteristics for someone to meet the classification. Um, now, one thing I want to say before going through these um, traits is that, you know, as I was constructing this criteria, I drew upon the concepts that are found in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, so the DSM. And that's what we use as psychologists and psychiatrists to, um, you know, offer a clinical diagnosis for, mm. you know, people that we see. But 
my disclaimer is that just because I drew upon the concepts in the DSM, I am by no means claiming that, you know, this cluster of traits can be used to uh, give a clinical diagnosis. In order for that to happen, there would have to be a tremendous amount of research that takes place to, in fact, validate that this cluster of traits do adequately identify a Nephilim host. So really, this is just like, it's a work in progress. It's it's the first attempt at laying out real specifically some of these traits. So um, with that said, I can actually go through these traits um, because I think it will help people understand what I mean by a Nephilim host. And then, um, you know, we can further differentiate it between Nephilim. So the there's two criterion. Criterion A is the physical traits, and then criterion B are the behavioral characteristics. So the physical traits um, would be someone excessively tall, and you would want to rule out gigantism. Um, so this would be someone seven feet or above. And then um, extraordinarily strong is another physical trait. Polydactyly, which is having six fingers or six toes. And then finally, red hair. And I want to say, <laughs> I want to say something about the red hair because I don't want to offend anyone with red hair. You know, when I first started talking about this, I'm blurry creatures. <laughs> Nate's like, "Hey, I've got red hair." <laughs> yeah, I have a two-year-old um, with red that's hair. That's something too. we come across a lot. Is in our in our circles, we talk about Nephilim, we talk about physical characteristics or um, <clears throat> characteristics of other uh, groups of people as part of these deceptions and and suddenly people are saying well my wife has red hair or i know this person who has this trait so what does that mean about them so right right. yes and you know it's natural that we do that and that's why i always want to um just explain uh why i chose red hair um as part of a physical trait for the nephilim host now um you know, again, I, it's not to say that anyone with red hair is a Nephilim host. My grandmother had red hair and she, you know, she was an amazing woman of God. She was my spiritual mentor. But, you know, at, throughout my investigation, what became clear is that the color red actually became a bit of a calling card for the Nephilim agenda. And, you know, what I found is it was this consistent thread um, all throughout history. And, you know, it red being a symbol of the Nephilim agenda really began with Esau. And I can um, unpack that a little bit more in in a few minutes. But, you know, as I was looking through all these historical documents, it really became undeniable that there's some level of connection between red hair and Nephilim traits. You know, we have the Edomites, we have the elongated skulls of Paracas, Peru. We've got, you know, the red-haired cannibals that terrorized the Paiute tribe in Nevada, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then you think about the Terran Basin mummies in China and the Celts, the Scythians, the Khazarians. And so there were all these connections with red hair and Nephilim traits. But, you know, it would be foolish for us to make a distinction or draw a conclusion based on one genetic marker alone. And, you know, just like for me as a psychologist, I wouldn't diagnose someone with schizophrenia based on one symptom alone. That's why you need a cluster of traits. Um, so hopefully that helps people with red hair that they're not like, Oh my gosh, I'm now a Nephilim host. I'm oh, not saying have, that at all. We have a whole, yeah, we, we have a, a whole thing with physical traits that people question us for. That's a whole other different topic, but yeah, <laughs> my wife has a square <laughs> jaw. Anyway, that's a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. That's also part of this agenda, which comes down to the transhumanism part at the very end. But yeah. 
Same agenda. It's right. funny how all these agendas all tie together. Yes, it does. And, you know, that's one of the things that um, hopefully readers get from my book and also, you know, when I share is that this isn't just, you know, what we're living today isn't just something that was created a century ago. This goes all the way back, the seed war that started at the dawn of humanity. And so once we can understand the big picture, I think it helps us recognize what we're in the midst of. So anyways, but back to the Nephilim host. So criterion B, the behavioral characteristics. Um, now, again, if there are no physical traits, then you want to see at least five of these um, in an individual. And they're in traits 13 through 19. They're much more severe. And so what I propose is if someone has those two or more of those traits, then irregardless of any other traits, they could be classified as a Nephilim host. And you'll see what I mean when I get there. So, okay, but just quickly running through these traits, lustfulness in conjunction with sexual misconduct, that's the first behavioral characteristic. Then deceitfulness as indicated by repeated lying and purposeful misrepresentation for personal profit and pleasure. Pervasive pattern of instability in relationships marked by control, manipulation, intimidation, and domination over others. A rebellious behavior in disregard for the rule of law. Haughty and prideful as if above reproach. Vengeful or inappropriate intense anger. Participation in sorcery, witchcraft, and or the occult. Reoccurring violent acts displaying disregard for the rights of others lack of remorse for heinous acts against other living beings, excessive focus on death-related topics and or symbolism, underlying dark personality that is masked by overinflated self-righteousness, dishonesty in trade and business transactions, a propensity toward corruption. And then here's uh, number 13. So the next several are the ones that are more severe. Sexual perversion involving pedophilia, sexual domination of others against their will and or bestiality. Trafficker of humans, engage in cannibalism, commit treasonous acts, pervasive pattern of engagement in sexual and or blood occult rituals, commit human sacrifices and the enslavement of others. So that gives you an idea of some of those behavioral characteristics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, you know, as I mentioned, um, Esau, you know, he's really important in the storyline of the Nephilim agenda. And I can unpack that a little bit more. But did you have any thoughts or anything to add to those behavioral characteristics? Well, you basically just described every world leader. Right. <laughs> right. right. Like, yeah. World leaders, uh, celebrities, entertainers, um, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Global everybody, financiers. everybody who's graduated from the World Economic Forum's School of Klaus Schwab, uh, <laughs> Dieter from Sprockets, yes. you know, yeah, the guy, the guy, the guy who has no, the guy who has no real power whatsoever is just managing to have all of these things, you know, be put in, put in place by people that are almost identical in personality and uh, action. Right. Right. Well, yeah. and one thing too is we're seeing a lot of folks that are what we would think of as like small time there or normal people, um, lower level folks, they're not at, you know, the head of a government or fortune 500 company, et cetera. But we're seeing a lot more people over the years that embody a lot of these traits. Um, you mm -hmm. know, Russ Isdar was one who, who I thought did a great job over his, his lifetime, God rest his soul, 
um, I doing something very similar, identifying these characteristics in those um, in terms of occult connected crimes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, even the high yeah. level, even the high level people, they need their their middlemen and their lower levels uh, to, you know, keep the, I guess, feeders. Well, not, you know, outside of the breeder programs, but like to keep people invested in this ritual that they've got going on. So it's right. not it's not always going to be, you know, so you're going to see some of those some of those traits in like, you know, your average car salesman has about seven of those traits. <laughs> You know, use car salesman, bump, bump it up. Right. But well, yeah, use <laughs> use car salesman near a military base. Oof. Ouch. Yeah. Listen, if, if anybody if anybody is getting guys to buy to buy a car, you know, a 10 year old car with 30 percent interest that that person who sold that to them is evil in their heart. OK, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Many such cases. Yes, I know. Maybe I should add that to the characteristics. Used car salesman. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, is in order to be a good used car salesman, you have to have some of these, which you would consider like traits of the psychopath, sociopath. Um, a lot of these, you know, traits. Not yeah, all. Yeah, there you is know. definitely some overlap. Right. Well, that's one question I do have, actually. Johnny, were you, did you have more to add? No, go ahead. Um, one question I do have. So. In terms of work that others have done with, let's say, demonic possession, um, mm-hmm. you know, I I hear these and I'm wondering too. So Nephilim host is there does seem to be overlap, but it is altogether a a different uh, phenomenon. It seems rather than just under the umbrella of overall possession here. Um, but with these traits, they can. Would you say that they can mimic one of several different disorders or several things that are covered in, let's say, the DSM? Yes, definitely. And I like your question, too, because I get that a lot. Like, what's the difference between a Nephilim host and then someone who is demonized, for example? And, you know, I would say that not all demonized people are Nephilim hosts, but all Nephilim hosts are demonized people. And, um, you know, we, we see examples, um, even in scripture with this, you know, um, when you think about, uh, when Jesus healed the boy that was demonized and and the demons were, you know, throwing him into the fire, he was having seizures. And so these demons were trying to destroy this boy's life. But, um, you know, there's nothing from that passage in scripture that would suggest that this boy was intentionally partnering with the spiritual forces of darkness, Um, and so when that's one example of someone who's demonized, I myself, I mean, I don't have time to go into my own personal story, but I have on other podcasts. Um, you know, I've been a a Christian all my life, but, um, through generational iniquity, through open doors and in my own bloodline, um, I have had, um, spirits that have harassed me throughout my life. Um, and I got set free, delivered, um, when I was at Fuller Theological Seminary, Um, so, you know, that's one thing. Um, but a Nephilim host is someone who would intentionally partner with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out the Nephilim agenda. And we see that in scripture, you know, it talks about, um, temples for the queen of heaven, for example. Um, you know, wherever there was queen of heaven worship, um, throughout scripture, it talks about male and female shrine prostitutes that were outside of those temples and they would engage in ritualistic sex magic. 
Well, that is someone who both is demonized, but they are intentionally partnering with that agenda to defile the human genome. So hopefully that kind of distinguishes a little bit for you. Definitely. That that clears that up. Yeah. Well, you see, um, you know, your celebrities that talk about selling their soul, they're, you know, Nephilim hosts mm-hmm. at, this, at this point. Yes, very likely. Now, again, these are proposed criteria, so we can't, I don't want us to go around necessarily diagnosing people, but what it does is it helps open our eyes and gives us discernment that, okay, this would explain why there's they're acting this way, that mm-hmm. while there's so much evil that's coming forth. And it really kind of to tie it all the way back to Esau, um, you know, one of the things that it's been said lately is that symbolism will be their downfall. And, um, you know, I, I really do think that if we pay attention to the symbolism uh, that's being, on, you know, displayed before our eyes, it connects a lot of dots. And so anyways, it, it, as I was writing this book, they're one of the symbols that became very clear, again, was the symbol or the color red. And like I said, it, it became this almost like a calling card of the Nephilim agenda. And when we think about it, um, you know, the color red is indelibly linked to the Edomites. Um, in fact, the the first mention in scripture of the Hebrew word for red, which is Adamoni, was um, in connection with Esau's birth. And it, it was describing Esau as being reddish of the hair or complexion. Well, it turns out that Esau, you know, he's very important to the storyline of the Nephilim agenda. And it's because this transformation took place between or when Esau became Edom. And what happened, um, you know, when we when we dig into the etymology of words, I think that's what really begins to uncover a lot of um, a lot of mysteries or a lot of things that have been hidden. And I love to dig into um, the etymology of words. In fact, you know, in my book, what I what I consider some of what I did is like this archaeological dig on language. Um, but anyway, so if we look at the Hebrew word for Edom, it's Adam, and it means to be read. And so when I discovered that, you know, my inquisitive mind, I'm like, what the heck does it mean to be read? And I began digging further. And, you know, when you when you look at the biblical meaning of the color red, you know, all throughout scripture, there's numerous connections of red aligning with the seed of Satan. And so, you know, we think about sin, for example, or the blood of evil deeds that's found in Isaiah one or even chaos, death and destruction. That's represented by the color red in Revelation six. Then, of course, Satan himself, you know, is represented by the color red. That's in um, Revelation 12. And then the beast and mystery Babylon in Revelation 17. And so you have this connection with the seed of Satan and the Nephilim are the seed of Satan. And so, you know, when Esau chose to be read, you know, this choice, it had substantial ramifications upon his generational line. Essentially, what Esau did is he branded himself red or Edom by willingly trading his birthright blessing um, for red stew, which I think is really interesting. So we read about that in Genesis 25, and I'll just read um, uh a couple of um, passages here, verses. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. 
But, you know, something much deeper than just a desire for red stew was at work here. What happened was Esau sealed this transaction. And it's it's a transaction that would actually constrict his allegiance to a particular seed. So in essence, what Esau did is he aligned himself with red, the seed of Satan, and he rejected the birthright blessings of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. So on that fateful day, what he did is he actually declared himself separate from Yahweh. And when I began to understand more of what that meant, I realized, okay, so I need to understand as much as I can about Esau because, you know, the characteristics that Esau has, that will contribute to this proposed criteria I was developing and so I started, you know, of course, looking in scripture and um, in Genesis 25, 27, it talks about how Esau, you know, he was this cunning hunter and a man of the fields. Well, again, as I began looking at some of the Hebrew words that are in that passage, um, the word for hunter is Said, and it means prey taken in hunting. And it comes from the root word sued, which means to lie in wait, to chase, to take provision. So, you know, we're beginning to see this character sketch of Esau. You know, he's this rugged man. He, he was an outdoorsman. He was really skilled at hunting. He probably loved the thrill of the hunt, you know, stalking the prey and then moving in for the kill. But what became even more enlightening to me is when I realized that there's also a figurative meaning of the word sued, that root word. And it's to describe someone who lies in wait to catch a human. And so, in other words, you know, to entrap someone with an intent for um, personal gain. And so then I began digging into um, some of the extra biblical manuscripts. And the book of Joshua actually provides uh, more details about Esau's character as well as the events that led up to him trading his birthright. And so this is out of Joshua 27. It says, And Esau at that time, after the death of Abraham, frequently went in the field to hunt. And Nimrod, king of Babel, the same was Amraphel, also frequently went with his mighty men to hunt in the field and to walk about with his men in the cool of the day. And Nimrod was observing Esau all the days, for a jealousy was formed in the heart of Nimrod against Esau all the days. On a certain day, Esau went into the field and found Nimrod walking in the wilderness with his two men. And all his mighty men and his people were with him in the wilderness, but they removed at a distance from him and they went from him in a different direction to hunt. And Esau concealed himself for Nimrod, and he lurked for him in the wilderness. And Nimrod and two of his men that were with him came to the place where they were, when Esau started suddenly from his lurking place and drew his sword and hastened and ran to Nimrod to cut off his head. So this story, what, what it brings to light is this conniving, designing, deceitful, even murderous aspect to Esau's personality. And this hunting expedition is what led up to the familiar passage that we read about in Genesis 25 when, you know, Esau comes off the field and runs into the tent and, you know, he's he's faint, he's weary and he's famished. Well, when you think about it, he exerted a tremendous amount of energy by killing Nimrod and two of his men. And then, of course, you know, he's on the run from Nimrod's men. And that's when he runs into the tent and finds Jacob making this red lentil stew. So then I was, you know, I was super curious about what, why this detail in scripture? Why, why would it go to the extent of listing it as red lentil stew? And so I began to dig a little bit more and it turns out that 
um, you know, red lentil stew is the meal of comfort that the eldest son would make for the grieving father. So here we have Esau, who should have been in the tent preparing this meal, but instead he's off in the fields killing others. Well, this is the backdrop to the transformation of Esau to Edom. You know, Esau chose to be red by covering his hands with this murderous blood instead of fulfilling, you know, this the, the loving role of the eldest son caring for the grieving father. Because remember, Abraham had just died in the storyline and Esau and Jacob, um, they're 15 years old at this time. And we learned that from other parts of the book of Josh, Joshua. And so, you know, Esau, instead of caring for his father and taking on that birthright, um, role, he's instead killing others. And, you know, it makes sense when God says, Jacob, I love and Esau, I hate. Well, this was the genesis of the, the color red becoming a calling card for this Nephilim agenda. And so then when you, you think about this transformation that Esau made to Edom, this had substantial ramifications upon his generational line. And I'll just give you an example. So um, Esau had a son named Iliophaz, and Iliophaz had a Horite concubine named Timnah. Now, Timnah bore Iliophaz a son, and they named him Amalek. Well, what's interesting about the Horites is that, you know, they're listed in Genesis 14 among a list of tribes of giants, but biblical scholars don't believe that they themselves were a tribe of giants, but more that they intermingled, meaning they interbred with uh, the giants. And so within Amalek, you have the bloodline of the Edomites on his father's side, and then you have the bloodline of the Horites on his mother's side. And most likely he had Nephilim genes within him. And his, the name Amalek actually means blood liquor. And so it means, you know, as in devouring something and then licking up the blood, which I found very interesting. And so, you know, in tracing this color red, you know, um, another aspect or another way that it was confirmed for me that this is a calling card of the Nephilim agenda is when I discovered that Rothschild means red shield. And arguably, the Rothschilds are probably the most influential Nephilim host in the common era. And so um, that was another point of confirmation. But then even, you know, as we fast forward to our current day, you know, there's all sorts of ways that the color red represent the Nephilim agenda. You know, we think about the spirit cooking of Maria Abramovich. You know, she's obsessed with using blood as her medium for her artistic expression. And then, of course, you have the red shoes being a symbol of pedophilia. And, you know, as I mentioned, pedophilia is one of the behavioral characteristics of Nephilim hosts. But even um, within the financial realm, you know, you have the term in the red, to mean being in debt. And, you know, one of the things my book obviously um, speaks to this is I look at the roots of the Federal Reserve. You know, what are the ancient roots of defilement um, that are intertwined in our monetary system? And the roots actually extend all the way back to Genesis 3.13, when Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so when you look at that Hebrew word for deceived, it means nausea. And um, when you look at the meaning of it, um, particularly when using what's called the Hebrew and English lexicon known as Brown Driver Briggs, um, it means to lend on interest or usury to become a creditor. 
So here you have the Hebrew word for deceive is actually to make someone a debtor. And that's what the entire Federal Reserve System is built on is this nauseous, this deception that makes us debtors. And so that's how, um, you know, Esau is really important in the storyline. But but an example of how the color red really has become this calling card for the Nephilim agenda. Hmm. That's yeah, that's for sure. Everything they do is well, red, red shield, the red army. Uh, red coats. They're all Rothschild. Red shoes. Red shoes. Oh, yeah, definitely the red shoes. Um, right. And <clears throat> yeah, this symbolism is incredibly important. And I think very, um, not underrated, but overlooked often. Um, a lot of people will go for the more obvious symbolism, the Ouroboros, the, the uh, all-seeing eye, the pyramid, everything, but tying it together throughout these societies. And many times, too, Nightly orders, um, occult societies, the the Rosicrucians, the Rose Cross, uh, the Knights of Malta, mm-hmm. um, the Red you know, Cross. These groups that, <laughs> yeah, the Red Cross, uh, the Templars, um, you know, they all use this red color as their their heraldry or in their heraldry. That was one great thing that Gary Wayne was talking about on the on the show. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it really helps us see how it's it all ties together. Um, and, you know, I think in addition to understanding the symbolism, you know, one of the other ways that the Nephilim and Nephilim hosts try to entangle us is they know how to use ley lines and portals and spiritual gates and grids. And so um, one of the things that I thought, you know, I think is important is if we understand what these are, because we actually can, you know, cleanse portals, we can cut ley lines, um, you know, we can take authority to, to reverse what they're trying to do in the earth realm. And so um, have you guys ever talked about ley lines or portals? I don't know how much your audience is familiar with it. We've, we've talked about ley lines uh, a bit when we talk about um, like uh, antediluvian uh, architecture and like all the, you know, the, the, okay. all that kind of stuff, but not, we haven't done like an entire episode on ley lines, but um, our, our listeners definitely know about them um, and how cities are aligned on them. Um, you know, it's always for a reason. Megaliths, Megaliths that, yeah. you know, are tied to the giants. Um, yeah. It's it. They pop up all the time. They do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, what you guys are talking about is essentially, you know, how people have defined ley lines in that they, you know, they're this alignment that connects, you know, whether it's ancient burial mounds or monuments or castles. um, And, you know, one of the, the gentlemen, he's probably the foremost expert on spiritual mapping. His name is George Otis Jr. He's the one that coined the term spiritual mapping. He defines ley lines as geographic continuums of spiritualized power that are established or at least recognized by the early inhabitants of an area. And so, you know, what we find over the course of time is that, you know, these ley lines are reinforced by ongoing worship at high places. Um, And then, of course, there's ritualistic bloodshed that takes place and that forms these additional power points along the ley lines. Um, But, you know, one thing that I think is um, important to understand, too, is that ley lines span time. And so, you know, they don't just pass with 
the expiration of a generation, for example. And, and that's why it's so important to, you know, if you're, if you're going to go cleanse the land and redeem the land, we really have to understand the history of what's taken place. And that kind of ties back into what I was talking about with spiritual mapping, because, you know, we want to understand the roots of defilement that are on this land. You know, we're, we're any of those four types of iniquity, the, the sexual perversion, the idolatry, the bloodshed and the broken covenants were those committed on this land. Because what happens is once you have that root of defilement, it sends that, you know, shoots to the surface and those shoots, what they do is they attract, you know, this, um, ongoing defilement, um, in a similar way. And what that does is that essentially strengthens the entanglement, um, within the spiritual realm over this land. And, you know, one way I think about it, I live in the Rocky mountain region and we have a weed called morning glory and morning glory has, um, you know, the roots run really deep, um, into the ground, but it will send these shoots all over the place up to the surface. And if you pick the weed just from the surface, um, you do nothing to eradicate the problem. The only way to, to get rid of the weed is to strike it at its root. And so that's, that's kind of the concept of why we have to understand the history and, you know, what, what happened that would establish these ley lines, um, now, portals and spiritual gates, they're passageways. Ley lines are also passageways, but the portals and spiritual gates, those are passageways between the heavenly realm and the earth realm. And, you know, the, there's a biblical example of this in um, Genesis 28 when Jacob saw a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And I'll just read that passage. He says, He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Well, when you look at that, that word for gate in the Hebrew, it's sha'ar. And it means um, to an, it's essentially like an entrance to a city or a palace or a temple. And it's often the place where judges or, you know, elders or kings would sit and they would conduct important business. So a spiritual gate, you know, it signifies a place of prominence. And, you know, most people wouldn't differentiate necessarily between a portal and a spiritual gate, but I actually think there's a subtle difference. And that subtle difference is in, the, you know, whether or not it's a place of prominence. So a place of prominence would be a spiritual gate. And, you know, one example, our, our spiritual mapping team here in the Salt Lake area years ago, we um, were asking the Lord to just give us revelation of the spiritual gates for our city and our state. And um, he showed us that one of the spiritual gates is a place called Memory Grove. And it's in the natural realm, it's, um, you know, it's a groomed park just adjacent to our state capital. And it, you know, it honors fallen military veterans, but in the spiritual realm, it's a gate for the queen of heaven. Um, so again, spiritual gates are the, these places of prominence. Now, um, a portal isn't necessarily a place of prominence. So portals can exist. Um, you know, if someone has built an honor or an altar of honor to the Lord, you know, just by, um, engaging in worship, or um, there can also be an altar of offense when false worship is offered to other gods. And so, 
you know, from my experience, that's how a portal is established if there's ongoing worship um, from a particular location. And I hadn't actually, I, I thought I'd tell a bit of a story because I had an interesting experience um, with a portal. So back in 2005, I traveled to uh, Torino, Italy, and I was um, helping the some of the local churches in that area prepare for the Olympics because they, they hosted the Winter Olympics after we did here in Salt Lake City. And our spiritual mapping team um, had written a prayer brief on the Olympics, and we had um, you know, participated in a lot of different prayer initiatives throughout our city in preparation for the Olympics. And so anyway, some of the, the churches in Torino wanted us to do a similar thing, how equip them and how to do that. So anyways, I traveled there and I brought three um, young people with me at the time I was the youth minister at our church. And we stayed with some friends that lived just outside of Torino and, you know, when we got there, after we unpacked our bags, our friend, um, you know, took us for a tour of our house and also her property. And she began talking about some of these strange occurrences that she was having with um, witchcraft curses. And she she kept finding fetishes on our property. Now, a fetish is an object um, essentially that has a curse attached to it. And so she would find these fetishes and around the same time, her children would be playing in the yard and have somewhat severe injuries. And so she began to realize that, you know, there was some witchcraft um, curses that were um, spoken against them in their property. And then another interesting thing that she said had been happening is, you know, they would have a lot of different guests out of town company come and stay with them throughout the years. And um, consistently the guests would, um, share that they had a nightmare and the nightmare had a, a common theme between guests, which, you know, is highly unusual. And so through prayer and discernment, they realized that there was a portal in their guest room. And so she told us this and she took us down there and th this guest room was, um, you know, it was huge. It was probably the size of four of our bedrooms here in the States. And, um, she didn't tell us where in the room the portal was. So we walked around and, um, were able to find it easily because when you stood in the portal, there just was this tangible presence of darkness. And so we stood in the midst of it and we began just to exercise the dominion authority that Jesus has given us, you know, through his life, death and resurrection. And, we started to walk in what in Matthew 16, 19, which says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind up on earth will be bound up in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so what we did essentially is just through prayer is we, we took those keys and we shut the door to the spiritual forces of darkness, being able to use that portal. And then we opened the doors to the angelic and um, just for the, the flow of the Holy Spirit. And then we just stood in the midst of that portal and began to worship Jesus and essentially did that until we felt like it was cleansed and there was um, angelic visitations that began happening. And so, you know, that's just an example of um, how portals are used. There's the, these access points, but, you know, they can either be um, good or bad. You know, they can be a, a portal can be used for um, angelic visitation or for um, spiritual forces of darkness. But it, you know, we have the ability 
when we walk with Jesus to be able to take authority over that and to cleanse it. So that's one way that we can, um, you know, rise up with what Nephilim hosts are trying to do in the earth realm by connecting these spiritual forces of darkness. Now, the last thing I wanted to share on this topic is just the spiritual grids. And essentially what a spiritual grid is, um, is when multiple ley lines are connected over a territory or a region. So you've got these defiled ley lines, you know, that form these power corridors that connect these sacred sites. And that establishes, again, this demonic stronghold over a territory. And what happens is people living amidst these spiritual grids, they may have no idea that there's a spiritual grid there, but they are still experiencing the ill effects of it. And so Torino is actually um, the intersection of two witchcraft triangles throughout the earth. Um, it's the the apex of the black magic triangle and the white magic triangle. So black magic triangle is the cities London, San Francisco, and Torino. And then white magic are the cities Lyon, Prague, and Torino. And so the fact that Torino is the apex of this intersection, it, they've earned the reputation of being the witchcraft capital of the world. And I have to tell you, in being there, um, it is very, very intense um, to be there. And, you know, I took these three young people with me. Um, they were early high schoolers and um, they were wonderful, but they had no idea what they were getting into. And so one of the days, you know, they were missing home and um, I knew it was important for us to just get out, go for a walk and debrief. And so, um, you know, our friends lived in this, uh, community that was amidst rolling Hills. And so we just went down for a walk in this Valley, um, me and these three youth and here I'm thinking we're going to have this, you know, great time of refreshment and just to debrief. And we find ourselves in the midst of the spiritual grid and this very active ley line. And it really was the first experience for me of like feeling like I'm in the midst of this ley line because what I saw was all these particles or objects or spiritual beings like rapidly moving away from me. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, the scene in Star Wars where the Millennium Falcon goes into hyperdrive and all the stars come at you. Right. Well, it was that only in reverse. Um, and I was seeing that and I mentioned it and no one else with me could see it. But one of the girls could feel it through her body. She could feel things moving through her. And then all four of us um, smelled this distinct foul odor. It was kind of like this combination between sulfur and, um, manure and there were no cows around. So, um, you know, it just was a real distinctive odor. And so I realized that the Lord had led us there to disconnect, um, or to sever the connection of this ley line that we were in the midst of. So we did that through prayer. And then we, um, asked the Holy spirit to fill the void that we had just cut. And when we did the the smell changed like instantly it it went from that you know sulfur manure to this pine fresh scent and um we all felt like that was just a sign from the lord of what we had accomplished and so when we went back to tell our friend you know who lives there what happened she actually wasn't surprised she said a lot of the locals talk about that energy field down in the valley and she said 
you know, people actually fly in from all over to experience that energy field. So it was, it was interesting, but that just gives you an idea of these spiritual grids that are all over the land. And in fact, one last thing about Torino is, you know, the Savoy family um, who used to uh, rule that area, they were very much into alchemy. And so they um, consulted with alchemists uh, in laying out the city of Torino. And I go into this in way more detail in my book. But um, what's interesting is they had five um, buildings or structures built on a pentagram. So when you when you connect them, it's a pentagram within a circle. And it was all according to um, the alchemist's um, advice. And one of those uh, was a place called the Basilica Superb- Superga. And this one is just right outside of the city of Torino. You can see it from down in the city. Well, this was all of these places were a place where a lot of bloodshed had happened. And um, in 1969, the Torino Football Club were flying in on a plane and it crashed in the Basilica. And there was just that's an example of when there's a root of iniquity of bloodshed. It sends these shoots to the surface to attract more iniquity. Well, that's what happened with this plane crash. Every single person died on that flight. And it was, you know, at this basilica that was part of um, these five buildings that were constructed and laying out a pentagram over the city. You find that you find that in a lot of cities. You can find that in Washington D.C. You can find that in the layout right. of pretty much any capital city. It's amazing, really. It's very coincidental, um, <laughs> or not. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I'm, yeah. We we have a phrase that's actually on one of our T-shirts. It says, no such thing as coincidence. Mm, yes, exactly. Um, well, yeah, go ahead, Reinhardt. I was going to say, the um, <clears throat> you know, Savoy family, I believe they are part of the Council of 300. And once yeah. again, they've got the white cross on a red field. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there you go. Yeah, the Savoy family is very, very high up in that uh, Medici banking cartel. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. You know, one of the things that I mentioned, too, um, just tying back, I don't want to leave any loose ends, but one of the things I mentioned earlier was um, the fact that Nephilim are alive today. So, you know, I spent quite a bit of time talking about Nephilim hosts, but, you know, it's, it's important, I think, for us to understand that Nephilim didn't just roam the earth, like I said earlier, during the days of antiquity, but... You know, there's, um, they're definitely alive today, and Satan has been building an army of hybrids, um, and Hitler certainly was instrumental in that agenda. And I thought I would just take a few minutes, if it's okay, just to talk about the hybrid breeding program. Um, yes. And you mentioned earlier the breeding program. Were you, um, perhaps this is something you've already talked about on your on your podcast, but I have, um, some connection with, I I won't say who for their own security reasons, but I do have, um, connection with, uh, one of the survivors of satanic ritual abuse that actually was, um, a mother, a hybrid birthing mother. And Hmm. so I thought I would go into that just a little bit, um, to help people understand what is, what is happening and the fact that there are Nephilim alive today. Yes, by all means, please do. 
We've talked about now. We've talked about birthing programs where, like, you know, um, we sometimes, as in jest, and and oftentimes, you know, really they do do this. <laughs> They've like where the where the people from Hollywood come from, where your celebrities come from, where all these these high mm-hmm. level, all these high level individuals that are put on and you know in front of you on your little devil mirror. <laughs> That's where they come right, from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's definitely there's breeding programs within satanic ritual abuse, but then there's hybrid breeding programs. And um, what I'll go into is the hybrid breeding program. So it's also known as the Hitler Project, and it began in 1944. And so mm-hmm. what Hitler did is he developed this trauma-based mind control program, and he um, he had Joseph Mengele run that program. And so, um, Joseph Mengele, I'm sure you're familiar with him, but he's a Nazi, was a Nazi scientist, but also a sorcerer. And so together, what they did is they really created the stage for these multiple incursions to happen through what was called a conception ritual. Now, um, you know, Satan knows which families are his greatest assets and, you know, there are the 13 royal bloodline families that have this um, generational iniquity that has built up over the centuries. So there's this iniquity force within the bloodline. And so daughters have been hand selected from this royal bloodline to birth Nephilim. And I'll I'll just give like a high level overview because um, it is very complex and, and there's just a, a lot of intricacies and so each survivor that you talk to that's been part of this, like I, I keep learning new things every day. Um, and I'm so grateful because one of them um, reached out to me um, personally, and we've been in conversation with one another, and I'm learning so much from her. But one of the things I'll share um, just with your audience is, you know, at first, this was really hard for me Um to grasp or even to believe that this is going on. And, and I wrote the book on, you know, Nephilim. <laughs> right. And it, it was hard even for me, but you know, one of the things I've, I've had the opportunity over the last year or so to meet some very incredible people. One of which is, um, a Christian woman who I have high regard for. I won't, um, say her name because, um, I'm not sure she, she works with some very high level people and um, what she does is very dangerous. And as you know, I think I've heard you mention this, um, you know, just recently we lost a lot of people um, within this realm, you know, D- Russ Dizdar and Rob Skiba and mm-hmm. um, Doug Riggs also used to work with um, people coming out of satanic ritual abuse. And he worked with hybrid birthing moms as well. And so anyways, for the sake of her, um, security. I won't mention her name, but she has spoken at conferences that I've spoken at as well. And so we've developed um, a really good connection. And she has worked with two hybrid birthing moms. And also, um, I had the opportunity to connect with Doug Riggs before he died. And I know that he's worked with hybrid birthing moms. And then there's another um, woman out of South Africa. Her name is Amanda Byes. And, um, anyways, the, the survivor that contacted me, um, recently, she has, um, worked with Amanda Byes and, um, she is, um, all the survivors that have been within this hybrid breeding program, they have a similar story, even though they don't know each other necessarily, um, their stories line up and they're located all across 
the world in different locations. And so when you see that all coming together and then knowing, um, you know, knowing the people that are actually doing the work with them and, and I vetted these people, it really helped me recognize, okay, this is really happening. So for what that's worth, um, for your audience, I know it's hard to, to kind of, um, grasp some of these things or to even believe they're remotely real, but back to this conception ritual. So how it's been described is that, um, this took place in 1944 and the, the ritual um, was with two two people, you know, a royal. Um, sometimes both were royals, but um, definitely at least one was of royal bloodline. And they came together for this pre-planned conception. Now, at the same time, there were rituals all across the earth involving um, bloodshed. And so you have this blood sacrifice that's taking place in, in this um, synchronized way and what that does is that that brought a convergence of power. So at that moment of conception, there's this interplay with the powers of darkness. And what happened is the embryos that were conceived um, at that point actually had a triple helix DNA. And so the third strand of the DNA exists in the spiritual realm. And so the, the daughters that were, were birthed from that conception ritual from the moment of their birth, um, they're brought into the Luciferian occult. And so they are severely ritually abused from the moment of birth. You know, they're brought to a death experience. And even as young as an infant, they began um, splitting. And then this would occur all throughout their life. And so you have very severe trauma, which leads to fragmentation. So dissociative identity disorder, um, you know, that it used to be known as multiple personalities. And so what they've described is when that fragmenting would occur, Joseph Mengele was there and he would channel a spirit into those newly formed identities. So then what you end up having is these girls would have principalities controlling multiple personalities within them. So in combination with the triple helix DNA and then, um, you know, the severe ritual abuse, they were actually impregnated, they described by a principality, and they gave birth to hybrids or to Nephilim. Now, um, you know, Satan, what he's doing is he's busy building up this army of hybrids for the final war of Revelation 9, 16 through 19. And, you know, he doesn't know the timing of when that will happen, but he's preparing now. And I think what's what's important to grasp is that God is allowing that to happen in our generation. And so, you know, what the report is from these um, survivors and, and the women that have birthed the Nephilim is that they are not, the Nephilim of today are not giants. Um, they are incredibly intelligent, they're strong, and they're exceptionally beautiful um, beings. And so, you know, I, I share these things because I, I do believe the Lord wants us to understand this, but not so that, you know, we allow fear to creep in. Instead, you know, we really need to stand in the truth of Ephesians 6.10, which it says, be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. And so, you know, we're in this time of history 
where I just really believe we have to rise up in our true identity of who God has created us to be as ambassadors of Christ. And, you know, Jesus is head over every power and authority. And so he calls us to take a stand against the devil's schemes. And that's why I think so much is being revealed right now that's been hidden in darkness for centuries because he wants to arm us with that understanding the wisdom and the knowledge so that we can stand strong in the Holy Spirit. And it really gives new meaning to this um, passage in Ephesians 16. If I go on and read um, just a couple of uh, verses, it says, put on God's complete set of armor provided for us that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God provides you so you're protected as you confront the slanderer. For you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. Put on truth as a belt to strengthen you to stand in triumph. Put on holiness as a protective armor that covers your heart. Stand on your feet alert. Then you'll always be ready to share the blessings of peace. In every battle, take faith as your wraparound shield, for it's able to extinguish the blazing arrows coming at you from the evil one. Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance, like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies, and take the mighty razor-sharp spirit sword of the spoken word of God. And that's one of the things that I do every day is I just put on my spiritual armor because I recognize we are in the midst of this unconventional war. You know, it's a battle of biblical proportions between good versus evil. And so I'll put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sandals of peace, shield of faith, and the sword of spirit every day because I recognize that, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So we're battling these principalities, these these powers of darkness. But the good news, I'm so encouraged because as I'm as I'm developing relationship with some of these survivors, um, they're coming to know the Lord Jesus. You know, they're so many of them now are believers and they're able to displace the principalities that were in the matrix of their multiple personalities. And to me, that just speaks so much hope that we are never without hope. And, you know, I'm so grateful because what they're doing now, these survivors, is they're actually, you know, revealing some of these dark secrets of the Luciferian occult practices. So it's it's truly remarkable what God is doing right now. I am most yeah, definitely. It is. Go, go ahead, Reiner. Oh, uh, yeah, it is. It is incredible. I mean, that's one thing that uh, we come across with a lot of people is that um, in our circles, at least, we've <clears throat> we have a term called black pilled. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that is more depressing. Like, right. You're looking at this reality. You're looking at things that are going on. You're staring into that abyss, so to speak. And it's just bringing you down further because you don't see, you don't, you don't see how things could number one, get any worse. Uh, they continue to do so, but how they can get any better. Um, but there, there is that hope out there. That is that light and people come out of it. Um, and it's an incredible thing, truly. Um, Amen. But I, I had one question, and I know Johnny's got one too before uh, before we finish up here. Um, part of this breeding program, um, I'm not sure how much how much you're privy to after all of this, or how much you can say. Um, something we've talked about here in terms of uh, you know proposed alien breeding, demonic, etc., is the idea of the androgyne agenda. 
and how prevalent that seems to be in you know coming through Kabbalah alchemy um, into these elites' plans today. And I was wondering, uh, do you believe that any of these hybrids that are born are are they born uh, only male and female and female because they need both, but they also seem to lift up this androgyne, you know, this Baphomet type. Right. Um, yeah. So I wonder if any of them are born androgyne as as neither as kind of an evidence of that. Yeah, that's a great question. I I actually I'm going to ask that question because I haven't yet and I'm I'm meeting with um one of the survivors this upcoming Monday. So thank you for that. She actually initially I thought all the Nephilim that were being born since 1944 were male, but she actually corrected me and said no, there are female Nephilim as well. Hmm. Um, so I will ask her that question about the androgen um, agenda. Okay. But you're right that 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 Baphomet um, is you know is both male female, um, and of course we see this agenda with transgenderism leading right into transhumanism, and mm-hmm. that's part of the Nephilim agenda. You know that goal to strip us of our humanity. Right. All right. Yeah, no, I agree. And they're they're pushing that they're pushing that right down everybody's throats. We've had uh, <clears throat> excuse me Scott Howard, uh, author of the Transgender Industrial Complex, on a couple times uh, to talk about his books. Uh, his other book being the Open mm. Society Playbook, uh, which is all all you know populated by people who exhibit uh, you know what twelve out of those thirteen traits all at the same time. Twelve out of nineteen. <laughs> yeah, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, it's eighteen yeah. out of nineteen for the most part. Um, <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy how how just like the cream rises to the top like that, and it just like those are just the best society had to offer, and right. I mean, isn't that how that works? It's how you you know you study hard, you you say your prayers, eat your wheaties, do your pushups, right? Read your books, and you end up president someday or something. Isn't that how it works? No. <laughs> so we were told. Right, right. Anybody can be president. Anybody can, be, and that's you know. That's, that's such a lie. Everything. They come to find out that they're probably literally growing presidents. Right. <laughs> and have been. Right. You know, and, um, you know, we make the joke out like Bill Clinton used to tell kids when he was a kid, I'm going to be president someday. And, you know, and he knew he knew because he was going to work real hard and go to Harvard and be a be a Rhodes Scholar. You know, all that. Yeah. No, right. they're, they're bred. They're these things. Everything you see is fake. And it is all like it's, these people are. They're all placed in the positions that they're in for reasons. I mean, I, I am of the theory that the game of risk was won a long time ago, and now they're just like bickering amongst each other to see who gets like, you know, I don't, I don't know what they're bickering over at this point. I think they have pretty, pretty solid control. <laughs> well, they may, you. yeah, they may, they may serve the same, uh, the same agenda as the same being, but they still want power for themselves. Well, there's they yeah. got all these factions too. Yeah, everybody wants Absolutely. to be part of the cool kids club. Mm-hmm. Um, Johnny, do you have a question too? Oh, I was going to ask, uh, when you were talking about treasure hunts and stuff, um, we have found lots of treasure in, um, old photographs and old newspapers and, and, uh, microfiche and stuff and looking at all these old pictures of, uh, the, the quote early days of photography and what we have come to know as a place called Tartaria. Um, mm. have you heard, have you ever I'm I'm doing the Joe Rogan. Have you ever done DMT? But I'm asking about something important, Tartaria. So yeah, <laughs> I'm asking every guest about this. 
Have you ever heard of Tartaria? I, and what do you think? I've heard of it, um, but I've not looked into it much. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to offer All right. anything at this point. <laughs> Okay, so um, you do live, you you do know, I mean, all about like the, the great white city there in Utah, though, right? You know. Right. Yes. Um, do you believe personally that, what was it, Reinhardt, a few hundred farmers like sculpted that out of, out of uh, yes. Little Box Canyon or whatever it was, Little Cottonwood Canyon? <laughs> Cottonwood, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I have questions. I have a lot of questions about that kind of stuff. The, the I more bet, we, yeah. The more we find out that we've been lied to recently, the more we have to realize that we've been lied to like the entire time. About, yes. Yeah. About lots of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, there, boy, there's a lot I could say on that. I don't know how much um, I should, but we have done um, some extensive spiritual mapping of our area, for example. And I'm, I'm actually um, launching into a new spiritual mapping project. Um, that we'll be looking at um, those types of things. I'll just put it that way. I don't want to say too much, but we are um, definitely aware that, you know, what's presented is not what's behind the scenes. And there's um, some dark nefarious stuff uh, connected to um, that white city that you're speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the so, so same things are connected to most cities uh, that are laid right. out in in and architected so similarly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an yeah, w- and there's growing connection that we're becoming aware of with the Vatican. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes, yes. absolutely. Yes, we uh, we've talked about them uh, a little bit. We could get we're going to get more in depth. On them differently. We had a we had a talk about Vatican II a while back. We had a big round table. That was fun. But, mm, um, I bet. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but there's yeah. You could all do. We could talk about the Vatican for days, days and days. I mean, that's that's a whole like series of podcasts. But yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and what you're finding is just so many of these these organizational entities, be they financial, political, even religious, um, you know, that that is a real big sticking point with a lot of people is that, you know, these institutions that uh, they've grown up believing are for their betterment or are uh, faithful, they're good Christian, they're good Muslim, whatever. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these places are built in these cities or um, around portals and things that are centers of darkness, right? Take Switzerland, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. It's very important religiously, politically, financially, um, sitting on what I believe is a very dark, ancient place. Oh, We've yeah. have done a lot of work on Switzerland. There's, yeah, yeah. There's a big hub down there, and all CERN's sitting right in the middle of it. <laughs> right, yeah. 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 But, um, yes, well, I, you're almost out of time here. You have another appointment you have to get to? I am. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Laura Sanger, for coming on. Um, we would love to have you back on anytime you'd like to come on to talk about any of this kind of stuff, because this is all right in our wheelhouse. So. Well, excellent. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate that. Yeah, And it's always it's always great to have new guests on and reach new audiences and all that good stuff. You want to uh, tell people where they can find you? Yes, absolutely. So the best place to start is my website, which is called no longer enslaved.com. And then from there I have, I write monthly articles, um, you know, 
a wide range of things. So I write on COVID-19, on globalism, on the Federal Reserve, you know, child and family advocacy, those types of things. And then um, you can find all my other podcasts that I've done, um, but also my book, which is The Roots of the Federal Reserve. Uh, you can purchase it directly from my website or from Amazon. Um, and then I recently, well, it's been about eight months ago now, I started a YouTube channel called No Longer Enslaved. I'm also on Rumble under the same name. And what I'm doing right now is I'm in the midst of a 10-part series called uh, The Impact of the Nephilim Agenda Today. And so if your listeners were you know, intrigued by what I was talking about today, I go a, a bit more in depth on um, that 10-part series. And then, of course, my book is The Deep Dive. Um, so that's how you can find me. And if you want to reach out, you can email me through my website. Awesome. Well, there you go, everybody. And right. we'll, oh, we'll make sure to sorry. put all of your links there as well on, on our website. Yes. One more thing I forgot to say. I'm also on Telegram under Laura Sanger 444 Hertz. So people can reach out to me there as well. Awesome. We are. Yes, we are also. We're big fans of the Telegram. I know. Yeah. I'm so grateful for it. Mm, definitely. Most definitely. It's a crazy place. <laughs> it reminds me of. Yeah. Other than the bots. It reminds me of like old school Twitter plus a whole lot of other great features. I know. Yeah. I really enjoy it. My publisher, um, she got me onto it, um, October of 2020, I think it was. And I'm so grateful, but you know, I got, I got kicked off Twitter when almost everyone else did. Um, I think it was January, just in January of 2021. So it was nice to have telegram to start, you know, connecting with people. Right. Yeah, we, well, we've been banned from Twitter for I've been banned from everything for a long time. You can't say <laughs> you can't that. say the things that we talk about and, and stay on mass, you know, on mainstream social media. They don't like that. They don't like it when you get right. to the things. Yeah. Right? Can't even stay on RSS. <laughs> right. We've been banned. Yeah, we've been banned from multiple RSSs. Really? RSSs. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. It happens when you're you know, it's like you take the most flack when you're over the target. Exactly. Yeah. So. Right. That's how we that's how we look at it. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Laura Sanger. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to connect with you guys. Yes. All right. Well, we definitely will it's good to meet you. Yes. We will hopefully have you back on uh, sooner than later. All right. You take care. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. All right. Dr. Laura Sanger. Ryan Hart, what do you think? Oh, that was great. Yeah. A lot of a lot of different topics. I I knew we were going to talk about the you know Nephilim agenda, breeding programs, things like that. But definitely went off into a few things I hadn't thought of before. Right. I had not thought of a lot of the things that she went into, but that's cool. That's cool. I had a good time. Uh, I, yeah, it's crazy how I've had her book since uh, like January 2021. I bought a bunch of stuff on Kindle, and apparently her book was in there. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to uh, to snag a copy from the time that we had um, from the time that we had emailed to you know this show. I have not had time to read any books. No, really, nobody so. would have. Nobody would have. It was rather hastily, not hastily, but uh, quickly done. You know. Yeah, yeah, quick turnaround. Yeah, quick turnaround on that one. Um, I don't even know when we're gonna release this. Probably just want to drop know. multiple bombs on people this week or what? <sighs> no, I'd say I'd say save it. Maybe uh. 
maybe next week. Okay, we'll release this one next we got week. we've got a big one the other this one weekend. This week. Yeah, we have a big one this weekend, too. So this is not time-sensitive. Um, I wish we didn't get into the Kazarian thing as much as I would have liked to. Um, however, she takes that apart very solidly in her Kazarian kids show with uh, the Blurry Creatures podcast. Um you're gonna you're going to the yeah, well it's gonna not time sensitive, but we've already kind of talked about this, but you're gonna be uh going to that Tim Alberino thing this weekend. I am. Yeah, it's uh it's gonna be interesting for sure. I mean, it's gonna be topics I know Alberino's got a bunch of presentations uh that he said he's never given before. Um AI, transhumanism, mark of the beast, aliens. Um it'll be pretty cool. I mean, he is uh globe respecter extraordinaire so he is that i'm what's that i said he is that yeah so that's gonna be interesting for sure but i will be wearing a paranormies t-shirt nice probably wear flat earth for dummies that's a good classic that's a classic or the uh i i really do like the uh the hp lovecraft the white one I, i'll wear that like under something that one is that one is good too because it gets people thinking as well. Like if you're at the gym and you're wearing it, and you see somebody just kind of like trying not to stare, but also staring. At also looking at like what is that? What is that? Is that two guys What's that holding one with the tentacles and the yeah. small hat? Yeah, weird, weird. There's always <laughs> that, but um, yeah. Well, hopefully we can have Doctor Sanger on again to talk about more of that stuff. But I didn't get to ask her. I did want to ask about what she thought about the naysayers of the historical aspect. That's the problem that a lot of people have with the historicity of the Khazar theory is that, well, there's no historical evidence. Well, no shit. <laughs> right. I do mean, you really think that they would just leave a perfect trail of breadcrumbs? Right. And then the ones that do leave, like, you know, uh, was it Kessler, Arthur Kessler, and then the ones that Benjamin Friedman, um, I forgot the other ones that she, there was a, there was a, a, a goy that she mentioned uh, what was his name? The uh, other article, the guy who, who wrote on the Khazar theory, who was had like an Irish last name, which probably Jewish, anyways, because you know the theory. Uh, you know, I don't the eternal Irishman. Um, but, right. <laughs> but um, oh, what was I going to say? Yeah. So there was, you know, there's these writers that write about, you know, the whole Khazar Empire and how the Khazars were this huge pagan sex cult ritual. Uh, phallic worshipping that were now on there they said that on the Blurry Creatures show she said that they had converted to Judaism because of uh, kind of like the way they named the, the boat in Alaska you know they took a pole that's how it became yeah, Bodie McBoatface but you know they yeah, took a pole and they decided between Christianity uh, Islam and Judaism they picked Judaism now that's not the story I I was told or that I actually it makes way more sense is that where the Khazarian Empire was, they were uh, in between Christian Russia and the uh, the Muslim Turks, I believe. And they converted to Judaism because both religions were um, they were, you know, descended of it, not descended. Well, yeah, descended of it. But (laughs) both of them looked favorably on Judaism. And so it was like, oh, cool, we can, you know, they, they were merchants, you know, and they basically took on Talmudism to, uh, to incorporate the, the uh, philo-Semitism of Islam and Christianity. 
Right. Well, yeah, that, that's the story with the Khazarian empires. They were they were right there in the crossroads of you know the Near East, the Caucasus, yeah. West, uh, Western Eastern Europe, the original all Belt of that Road, area. the original Belt yeah. Road Initiative went right through there. It still does. Yeah, weird. Right. And that's we- weird how you know Ukraine is right there, and it's Khazaria. All this stuff is happening. Mm. And again, we've been told that you know Israel isn't. It, I mean, Theodore Herzl, I believe it was when he founded Zionism, he even said, you know, Switzerland is the real home of the Jew and it's not even that. And it's, it's, you know, it's the Caucasus Mountains. And again, you have, then you have, um, uh, what's his name there? Chosen people from the Caucasus, um, Iceman Inheritance. What the heck's his name? I can't remember. Oh, uh, Michael. Oh yeah, Michael Bradley. Yes. Michael Bradley. Michael Bradley. Yeah. And his books where he talks about this. I mean, there's no historicity. Well, I'm sorry, David Duke. You're wrong. So, <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'm sorry. You you just are. There have been and there have been genetic studies by both Jews and non-Jews, right? Um, that have connected, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews to the Black Sea region to the mm-hmm. Caucasus Mountains. Yeah, I mean, it and it makes sense and it fits and it all makes sense. And of course, it's not in the historical record. Why would it be? Right. Well, and and you know, part of the part of the thing of it, if you're a believer in Christianity, if you're a believer in the Bible, you know, they are written to have descended from the people of Japheth, who right. one of his uh, grandsons or great grandsons was named literally Ashkenaz. Right. There's oh yeah, there's that as well. And don't forget that the Edomites, I believe, is what it was, were the was literally the name for Edomite, which is descended from Jasher. Or Japheth, excuse me, ja- not Jasher, Josher. Woof. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to. Okay. Gonna have to gonna have to lock that one away. Um, That's it. So end. yeah, all of these all of these connections are there. Uh, like many things, all you have to do is go on. Well, as as Laura said, actually, go on a little treasure hunt. You know, I think that's I think that's the problem with these guys. Call, call them bug gnats, whatever. Uh, who want to just throw these theories by the wayside and just keep believing what they do. Um, ignore the evidence. They, they don't like treasure hunts. How could and you not like treasure hunts, man? That's like, that's, I don't trust anyone who doesn't like treasure. I hunts. don't trust, you know, I always used to say, I don't trust a man who doesn't drink. That was when I was <laughs> drinking heavily, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. Never trust a man with two first names. That, that still holds up. Right. And uh, also, yeah, never trust anybody who doesn't like treasure hunts. And never trust anybody who your dog doesn't like. That's legit, too, because <laughs> your, your your dog could probably sense how many of those qualities somebody has. Yeah, probably see some of them, too. You know, smell them. Yeah. You can smell them. Yeah, it's like if dogs and babies don't like you, you're sus. Yeah, that's fair. Mm. See, that's, man, baby, babies in the spiritual realm. That's a rabbit hole. Right, that is absolutely see, I, it is. I keep I keep wondering like any anytime my son wakes up in the middle of the night not often but he'll, he'll be just inconsolable afraid of something and I'm just mm-hmm. wondering like man if they really are more tuned to the spiritual realm I wonder what kind of horrific things they're being shown right now There's like, that and there's also I can't imagine cuz I don't remember but I can't imagine what kind of dreams his uncalcified pineal gland is showing in his little brain you know what I mean Right Yeah my my daughter's oh my the same God. way Like I you know I dream pretty well I've done some decalcifying. I've done all the you know the things you can do, um, as far as as far as I can as a as, you know as a <laughs> as an older adult. You know, there's only so much you can fix back up. Um, but 
yeah, I remember dreams being so much more vivid when I was when I was little, when I was younger. I can't imagine. I really can't imagine what what kids who've never been fed any sort of fluoride or had you know the vaccines or any of that kind of stuff. Even formula made with water, made from you know like tap water, or whatever. None of that. Yeah, that's true. Wow the the purely breastfed mind. Yep. <laughs> what that, the purely man. breastfed mind sees. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what the purely breastfed two year old has has seen. You know the grass only eating the grass fed meats and only only had eggs from the farm which is literally where they live and it and it sees every it comes out of its dreams every night just looking like the uh the doomer schizo you know the gray (laughs) doomer (laughs) instead of yeah instead instead of the cigarette it's a sippy cup oh man yeah (laughs) it's a passy just hanging out it's a passy just hanging out of the corner of his mouth oh that's seen some things man (laughs) (laughs) but yeah johnny i i agree um you know, wanted to get a little more into the the Kazarian stuff, but we we've got you know more time. If she would like to come back on, we'll definitely have her to talk about that. But it is it is a broad topic, and we we have to do our own Kazarian episode. That's I think one of the most requested topics. We are, and I think we should do that sooner than later. Uh, we'll call this like a kickoff to us doing the Kazarian theory. Yeah, we can we can do a lot with that i mean well we can trace it from <laughs> from noah to right. you know, the modern era absolutely we can all right well let's wrap this one up and we're gonna get out of here and of course there will be some sort of recording afterwards there will be some sort of creepy pasta um, yes yeah we'll get out of here and we'll see y'all later time travel makes you gay It was in early November of 1997 that a series of very strange sessions led a child psychologist in Maine to contact the authorities. It started when a patient of his began to tell him about one of their friends. This friend, being imaginary as far as both the psychiatrist and the boy's parents were concerned, he called this friend Mr. Smile and would talk about him at great length during some sessions. The boy called him Mr. Smile, both because he would always smile, and because when he was around the boy, he said everything felt happy. He said there was a feeling of everything being okay. The boy in question was being treated for serious issues to do with anger and depression, but when Mr. Smile was around, he said that all the anger and the sadness seemed to disappear. He said that Mr. Smile would not speak, but rather just stand there, at the foot of his bed. He smelled like candy floss, and just by being there, he made the boy feel calm and safe. The psychiatrist assumed this imaginary friend was some sort of coping mechanism the boy had developed to deal with the problems at home that had led to his violent temper, and he thought nothing of it. Until another patient... A girl of about nine years old also began talking about her imaginary friend, Mr. Smile. And then a boy of seven. And then a boy of twelve. And then a girl of eleven. All in all, close to fifteen separate patients all began to talk to him about Mr. Smile. The first few he'd put down to coincidence. After all, Many children have imaginary friends, and the name and description of Mr. Smile 
were just generic enough that it didn't concern him too much at first. But as more and more of his patients told him about Mr. Smile, he began to grow concerned. That's when he asked for more details. Every single one of them described him the same way, using the exact same words. Now there was no way that all of these children could be in contact with each other. Five of them, for instance, were currently being homeschooled and according to their parents when he spoke to them, never even left the house, except when it was to accompany them on shopping trips and the like. There was no way that every single one of these kids could have rehearsed or prepared their statements together. This led him to a deeply disturbing conclusion. He spoke privately with each of the children's parents, one at a time. He avoided disclosing too much information, but told them that something troubling had cropped up in multiple sessions with various patients, and that he believed that there was a chance their child was at risk. He asked for their permission to discuss matters with the authorities, and the parents gave their consent, provided they were kept in the loop as to what was going on. And so, over the course of the next week, the police came and talked to the children about their friend. They asked for details about his appearance, which they couldn't seem to describe apart from the smile and that he was not like them. How he got into their house, anything he said or did while he was there. By this point, the psychiatrist, the parents, and the police were all convinced that Mr. Smile was quite real and quite dangerous. The authorities had checked to make sure there were no known predators living in the area which they had confirmed was not the case. But it was quite clear that whoever this Mr. Smile was, he was a real person who had been sneaking into the homes of these children at night. None of the children claimed to know how he got in. They said they would simply wake up and he would be there at the foot of their bed. Sometimes they said he would be singing something, but not in English. It sounded like a lullaby, they said. It made them feel safe. Finally, the children were asked to draw Mr. Smile, as they couldn't put into words how he looked. Each and every one of the children picked up a red crayon and proceeded to color in the entire page until it was just a rectangle of red. When asked about this, the children insisted that they had drawn Mr. Smile. When asked where his head, arms, and legs were, they would insist that they had drawn those. They claimed that they had drawn a perfect picture of the man at the foot of their bed, and when they were told that they had simply colored in the page and not drawn anything at all, they became deeply angry, feeling that they were being accused of lying and insisting that what they had drawn was a picture of the man they had seen. Acting more on a hunch than anything else, the psychiatrist decided to show one of the colored-in rectangles to the various children and ask them what it was. Each and every one of them, with no knowledge of what the picture was supposed to be or who had drawn it, and with no knowledge that the other children had been spoken to about this subject even existed, replied that it was a picture of Mr. Smile. 
Cameras and baby monitors were placed in the children's rooms so that they could be monitored. Many of the parents simply stopped sleeping altogether, staying up all night staring at the screens that displayed where their children slept. At no point did anyone enter or exit the bedrooms. No sounds, except for them snoring or occasionally talking in their sleep, were heard over the baby monitors. There was no sign of Mr. Smile. After almost two weeks of this, many of them began to doubt that Mr. Smile had ever existed. Other psychiatrists since have put the whole thing down to some strange, shared delusion that while it couldn't be explained, did not have any basis in reality. Some suggested that this whole Mr. Smile thing had its basis in a TV show or film that the children had all watched, leading them all to dream up something similar. Then, one of the boys went missing. The camera in his room had gone dead at around two in the morning. His mother had run in to check on him, only to find his room empty. It had taken her less than a minute to run to his room, and there was no possible way for him to leave or be taken, and be out of her sight in the time it took her to leave her bedroom and run towards his, but he was gone. She said there was a smell like cotton candy in the room. The search for the boy turned up nothing. No one had seen anything strange or unusual around the home before or during the disappearance, and no trace of him was ever found. It was less than a week later that one of the girls who had spoken of Mr. Smile had vanished as well. Then another. Then another one of the boys. One by one, each of them began to disappear, until only four remained. The four remaining children began to talk about how Mr. Smile and his friends were going to take them away very soon. When asked about these friends, they only talked about how Mr. Smile lived with the other smiling men in the happy place, and that he would take them there soon. They said that there were lots of people there already, and that in the happy place everything was beautiful. They said that they knew about it because Mr. Smile talked to them in their heads, because he couldn't talk like other people did and that he would show them pictures in their heads of the place they were going. Things began to grow increasingly disturbing. After a few weeks, the children began complaining of headaches and nausea. Their schools reported that they had begun to suffer hallucinations, and two of them started complaining that they didn't like the place that Mr. Smile was showing them anymore. One began screaming for half an hour, acting as if they were having a fit, screaming for the colors to stop, that the colors were horrible, and that they needed to go away. One of the children claimed that Mr. Smile was talking to them in their head all the time and was telling them things, terrible things, but that they couldn't talk about it, that they mustn't because their parents would know about the terrible things too. The psychiatrist asked them to write down what Mr. Smile was saying, promising that he would show it to no one. Managing to gain the trust of one of the boys enough that he agreed, 
The contents of the book are known only to him and the authorities, but whenever anyone involved has been asked about it, they stay quiet and quickly find an excuse to change the subject. The children stopped sleeping. Footage from the security cameras showed them sitting bolt upright, their eyes unblinking, just staring at the wall without moving or making a sound. Sedatives did nothing. One of the girls began cutting strange, circular marks into her skin, while two of the boys ceased communicating in English altogether. The language they spoke was never identified, and despite numerous people being asked to listen to them, they could not translate what they were saying. By the start of 1999, all four of the children had vanished into thin air. There was no trace of who took them, and searches have turned up nothing to this day, with no indication of where they are, or if they're even dead or alive. No suspects have ever been found either. All four of them appear to simply vanish, much like the others, all of whom remain missing, their disappearances unexplained. <laughs>